We didn't know what a rock star Eduardo Cohn <laughs> uh, is, so here we are, we're learning. Um, good evening, and welcome to the Center for the Study of World Religions. My name is um, Charles Stang, I'm the new director here, and I'd like to thank you all for coming out this evening, and I'd like to thank the Center's staff, especially Ariella Ruth, for making this evening possible. <coughs> I have the distinct honor and pleasure of welcoming Professor Eduardo Cohn, from McGill University, whose lecture inaugurates one of the center's new programming series, a series entitled Matter and Spirit, Ecology and the Non-Human Turn. So permit me uh, a word on this thread before I introduce Professor Cohn and explain how he fits into this new series. Recent work in the humanities and social sciences has generated new interest in the age-old religious question of the relationship between matter and spirit and its relevance for the environmental crisis we now face. On the one hand, vibrant materialists, such as the political theorist Jane Bennett, asks us to revise our view of matter as an inert object we manipulate and invite us instead to think of the vibrancy of non-human and allegedly inanimate things, that is, their agency and their creativity. This promises to cultivate a different ecological sensibility and different sorts of political interventions in the environmental crisis. On the other hand, anthropologists have revived interest in spirits and their interactions with humans, taking these phenomena seriously if not literally, as occasions to widen our notion of agency. Perhaps humans are just one expression of a more widely <coughs> distributed agency, an agency spread across the full spectrum of the alleged antinomy of matter and spirit. Richard Grusin of the Center for 21st Century Studies calls this decentering of the human, quote, the non-human turn. Could it be that by shifting our focus away from the human to, quote, animals, affectivity, bodies, materiality, technologies, and organic and geophysical systems, could it be by doing that we might actually summon an ecological imagination that better safeguards humans precisely by displacing them from the center of all inquiry? We hazard to guess that questions such as these might help us reinvigorate our thinking about religion and ecology. What can these fields of inquiry teach religious studies about cultivating an ecological imagination and a potent activism? And what can religious studies in turn contribute to these fields? I was thrilled when Professor Cohn accepted our invitation to inaugurate this series. His 2013 book, how Forests Think Toward an Anthropology Beyond the Human is at the very heart of this debate. Refreshingly, he takes strong stands in this book. Based on extensive ethnographic research among the Runa of Ecuador's upper Amazon, Cohn explores how humans interact with beings beyond them and how they not only think about those living beings and think with them, but are also thought by them. And here lies the rub. 
we humans are thought by something else, by someone else. We are the objects of others' thinking. Now, what does Cohen mean? Well, with the help of the philosopher Charles Peirce, he argues that all life is semiotic. That is, that all living things are minds that deploy and interpret signs, and that this sign use is what it means to think. Thus, we humans are not the only minds in this world, not its only thinkers. We are distinguished instead by our symbolic thinking, language, which we erroneously assume is the only type of sign use, the only type of thinking. We measure the world by this symbolic or linguistic standard, and we find that it falls short, short of thought. This brings new meaning to Stephen Jay Gould's phrase, the mismeasure of man. For according to Cohn, we mismeasure not fellow human beings, of course we do that too, but we mismeasure fellow living beings. We measure them by our standard, and our exercise amounts to a narcissistic confirmation of our unique place in the world as thinkers. In Cohn's hands, or more accurately, in the hands of his runa friends, animals, plants, and spirits emerge as thinking selves, and the Am Amazonian canopy shelters an especially dense ecology of overlapping selves not bound by species, nor even bound by the borders of skin, nor the exigencies of time. As he puts it, we are not the only we. <coughs> Don Haraway from the University of California, Santa Cruz, says this of Cohn's book. A thinking forest is not a metaphor. I'll say that again. A thinking forest is not a metaphor. This book is a powerfully good read, she says, one that changed my dreams and reworked my settled habits of interpretation, even the multi-species ones. <coughs> so Cohn initiates us into what he calls a sylvan way of thinking. But to what end? He closes his book with these words, quote, my own ethnographic meditation has been an attempt to liberate our thinking. Opening our thinking in this way might allow us to realize a greater us, an us that can flourish not just in our lives, but in the lives of those who live beyond us. That would be our gift, however modest, to the living future. Notice those three words, liberation, realization, flourishing. If, in today's world of planetary crisis, sylvan thinking can deliver on those and to those who live beyond us, it will be no modest gift. So please join me in welcoming Professor Eduardo Cohn for his lecture, Anthropology as Cosmic Diplomacy Toward an Ecological Ethics for the Anthropocene. Thank you, Charles, for such a wonderful and generous introduction. Um, it's, it's a real pleasure to be here, um, a pleasure to um, 
have a moment to share ideas that I care about um, and to, to learn from you. Um, I'm going to be presenting things that are, are new for me and put me in, um, uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, I might be in a vulnerable position here, and that's part of what I'm doing. Uh, so please, I hope we can have a conversation around these things. Um, so yes, um, I'll just, I'll just uh, jump right in. Um, I'm, I'm an anthropologist. And my job is to immerse myself ethnographically, to chart relations, and to find new ways to listen. Garbed in the flesh and skin I've come to equip with, protected by my words and the stories I weave together with them, I take these tools that make me human into the world we call the field. Perhaps today our vocation's name might feel a bit outdated, given that our task to immerse ourselves can take us to fields where not all of the beings we encounter are of the anthropic sort. Working as I do in and around indigenous communities of the Ecuadorian Amazon, threatened by the destruction of ecologies, of relational worlds, these other than human beings include plants, animals, and even, and perhaps especially, spirits. Learning to listen to these other kinds of others has forced me to divest myself of some of the human trappings that equip me, and to thus travel beyond the schemas through which I normally think. Despite the fact that its theories are fashioned almost entirely from our human equipment. Anthropology, thanks to its immersive method, is a vocation that can uniquely open us to the worlds these other kinds of beings inhabit. Our attempts to grapple with what we learn there as well as how we learn it can allow us to capacitate other kinds of concepts, perhaps even as Manari Ushigwa, my Sapara brother and colleague, suggests other kinds of gods. <clears throat> Giving life to these other kinds of concepts involves understanding thought from one world in terms of those from another with a view to grasping the emergent concepts that might unite these thoughts as one. In this sense, a synonym for anthropologist is yachak, or knower, which is the Quechua word the humans I work with use for shaman. Moving among worlds is not merely a scholarly endeavor. It's a political act. We do so in order to recognize the way we take part in that larger flow of life that today is under grave threat. In this sense, another synonym for anthropologist might be diplomat, more accurately in Bruno Latour's terms, a cosmic diplomat. diplomat. For the aim, of moving the aim of moving among worlds is to find ways to avoid a cosmic, by which I mean an ecological cataclysm. In recognition of the ways in which culture is now a force of nature, some geologists have, have proposed the term Anthropocene for the geological epoch in which we live. Living in the so-called time of humans requires us to rethink what we mean by the human and to rethink for the future, for this epoch is far from over, a kind of ethics appropriate to a time in which separating from humans, humans from non-humans is no longer practically or metaphysically practicable or thinkable. This involves recapturing the shamanic and diplomatic valences of the anthropological vocation, donning other kinds of clothing and equipping ourselves with other kinds of tools, not all of which are of the human sort. Working as I do in the Amazonian rainforest, my task as a cosmic diplomat is to allow sylvan selves, the plants, animals, and especially spirits that also make their homes in the forest, a mode of expression that can be heard within our scholarly, biological, political, and legal idioms. 
With this end in mind, I wrote a book called How Forests Think, based on long-term field work in and around Avila, Quechua-speaking Runa community in the northwestern part of Ecuador's, Ecuador's Amazon region. When I say that forests think, I don't mean it as a metaphor, as Donna Haraway says, nor am I referring to a culturally embedded belief. The claim is rather part of a diplomatic effort to convince you of the reality of things that can sometimes go unnoticed, given the limits of certain me metaphysical assumptions that form the foundations for Western scholarly thought, including anthropological thought. By saying that forests think, I mean that life is mind, that life is thought. What we share with other beings isn't so much our bodies, but our capacity to think. Mind here refers to that process wherever in the universe it's found of learning by experience. Evolutionary dynamics in this sense are mental dynamics because they imply the ways in which a lineage over time and via natural selection learns something about its environment. Wings as they evolved have come to increasingly represent something about the currents of air on which they glide for those lineages of organisms that have them. This is an example of thought. It's a kind of intelligence. One could say in philosopher Charles Peirce's terms that it's a scientific intelligence. This kind of thought, like all true by which I mean living thought, does something. Flying becomes a new mode of being for a new kind of avian creature. When thought is alive, it is because it makes this kind of worldly difference. There are places in this world where this kind of mental dynamic is amplified Places where there's more mind, more thought. Places that exhibit more scientific intelligence. One such place is Ecuador's megadiverse Amazon region. If lives are minds, these dense tropical ecosystems would be sites for the emergence of ecologies made up of an unprecedented multitude of minds, thinking in an equally unprecedented multitude of thoughts. <clears throat> we humans have developed many techniques to amplify this kind of thinking. The great success of the scientific method is part and due. Um, the great success of the scientific method is due in part. I'm well aware of the the, the power structures in which science operates, um, but the, what makes science as a method successful is the fact that it's a form of thinking that can self-consciously tap into the ways in which evolutionary dynamics themselves learn by experience. That is the scientific method and the coming community that thinks through it, harnesses and amplifies the ways in which the world itself thinks. It is its own evolutionary dynamic that has learned to think by listening to the scientific intelligence already operant in the living world. But it's not the only kind of science. Amazonian shamanistic practices that involve the ingestion of the psychedelic decoction ayahuasca, or the cultivation and interpretation of dreams, to give just two examples, are also sciences in the sense that they constitute specific techniques to accelerate and amplify a process of learning by experience. Their great advantage over the other sciences is that their particular form of learning involves the systematic disruption of some of our human schemas for thinking. That these practices have unfolded in that place on our planet with the richest proliferation of non-human minds is no coincidence, and it makes them a privileged form of thinking scientifically with the scientific intelligence inherent to life. I find the etymology of the word psychedelic pr productive to think with. From the Greek psyche, solar mind, and deluan to make manifest, ayahuasca makes manifest to us the mind of those thinking forests that are themselves mind manifesting. So forests think, <coughs> but how do they think? <coughs> the biggest obstacle we face in grasping this kind of thought 
is that we confuse what thinking is with a specifically human form of thinking that tends to erase other more expansive but more fragile forms of thought. What makes human thinking distinctive is a representational dynamic that following Peirce can be termed symbolic. Symbols come to mean by virtue of the relations they have to, to a system of other symbols which form the interpretive contexts that give them meaning. The English word dog, for example, refers to the animal in question indirectly thanks to a prior relation to the system of symbols that gives it meaning. Thinking in symbols is what makes us so special as humans. It is the basis for language, culture, and consciousness. But we're also open to other forms of thinking that reach well beyond the human, forms of thought that we share with all other living selves. This kind of thinking has another kind of dynamic whose logic is based more on the image than on the word. It traffics in two non-symbolic representational modalities, those that are iconic and those that are indexical. Of these, indices are easiest to grasp. An index is a kind of sign that corresponds to or correlates with something it's not. For example, a monkey's cry of danger is not the dangerous entity it indicates. Indices, however, are the product of complex interactions among a much more counterintuitive sign process that underlies it. Icons, icons refer to their objects of reference not by pointing to them, they don't actually in and of themselves refer at all, and they, theref they therefore exist at the very margins of semiosis and of thought. But the way they refer is by sharing in and of themselves something of the properties of the object in question. So if ontology, in the classic sense in which I use the term, is the exploration of those realities that are independent of how we humans might relate to them, <clears throat> then iconicity, being the kind of sign that is what it is regardless of how it relates to its object, might confer an interesting vantage from which to explore such realities. Indices and icons make up the form of thinking proper to forests. When, for example, a spot-winged antbird alarm, when, for example, a spot-winged antbird's alarm call points to a jaguar's presence, and a, hunter, and a hunter simulates that call he heard in a way that resembles it, both partake in a form of thinking that is imagistic. And when we cultivate our dreams or take ayahuasca, we are also thinking with and like forests. For these techniques temporarily break parts of the symbolic systems that house and sustain us as humans, permitting our thoughts to rejoin that kind of thinking that goes beyond the human. This form of thinking, which as living selves is something that is also ours, I call sylvan, as in sauvage. Sylvan thinking, that real pensée sauvage, like all good scientific intelligences, amplifies and thus makes available for further thought certain properties of the sylvan worlds with which it thinks. It has a psychedelic potential. <clears throat> to my mind, the, the phenomenon we're calling the Anthropocene is an actualization of the dualism inherent to symbolic thinking. Symbolic thought creates virtual and relatively closed thought worlds that relate indirectly to the more concrete worlds to which they also refer. Agriculture, animal husbandry, the rise of cities and states, the industrial revolution, the accelerated flow of capital and information are increasing, perhaps historically contingent realizations of this human tendency to create realms of culture that are increasingly separable, perhaps alienated from nature, to such a de degree that that culture can eventually become a force of nature. 
a great danger of being human is to get too caught up in what makes us distinctively human. Trump's particular brand of me-first thoughtlessness, and that's a term from Donna Haraway, which aligns individual, national, racial, gender, and even species narcissisms with, within an ever-expanding arc exhibiting a brutal fractal-like symmetry, is a chilling consequence of this isolation from the worlds that hold us. In this regard, the human sciences haven't helped. Conceptual tools that grow out of working with the distinctive symbolic properties of human thought, and I'm thinking particularly of social construction and all of its variants, make it even more difficult to understand a way of thinking beyond the sort of dualism that pulls humans out of those worlds that both make us and are not us. Harnessing the logic of Sylvan thinking. Given the ways in which our lives and thoughts are so entangled with dualism, how can thinking with forests help us? Sylvan thinking holds dualism in the sense that it's a form of thinking that is larger than the human. And this can help us work conceptually with the connections we have to the non-human, despite the separation that our distinctive form of thought creates. Cultivating Sylvan thinking as an ethical orientation for the Anthropocene involves harnessing some of its other-than-human properties. And I'm going to here talk briefly about four of them. Sylvan thinking involves images, absences, play, and something I'll call generals. Sylvan thinking's imagistic quality confers on it a host of counterintuitive properties. Consider the cryptically camouflaged Amazonian katydid, Cycloptera speculata, which is pictured here. How did such a katydid come to look so much like a leaf? This doesn't depend on anyone noticing this resemblance, our usual understanding of how likeness works. Rather, its likeness is the product of the fact that the ancestors of its potential predators did not notice its ancestors. These potential predators failed to notice the differences between these ancestors and actual leaves. Over evolutionary time, those lineages of katydids that were least noticed survived. Thanks to all the proto-cryptic katydids that were noticed and eaten because they differed from their environments, Cycloptera speculata came to be more like the world of leaves around it. So how this katydid came to be so invisible reveals important properties of iconicity. Iconicity, that the most basic kind of sign process, is highly counterintuitive because it involves a dynamic in which two things are not distinguished. We tend to think of the icon as a sign that points to the similarities among things we know to be different, but semiosis does not begin with the recognition of any intrinsic similarity or difference. Rather, it begins with not noticing possible differences. It begins with indistinction or confusion. Let me say something else about the imagistic logic that characterizes Sylvan thinking. It's deeply personal. Icons share something in common with the objects they represent in the way they are their objects. There's an uh, emotional correlate to this, a feeling of identification, a feeling of, of knowing, a feeling of oneness. <coughs> but convincing others of this can be quite difficult. To get an icon, you have to feel it for yourself. In my lectures, I often illustrate iconic thinking by having people guess at the meaning of a Quechua imagistic word, such as tsupu, which is used to describe an object making contact with and then submerging underwater, tsupu. I then contrast this with wor other words in Quechua that are much more standard, conventional words, which being conventional, conventional don't have this kind of sonic imagistic connection to what they mean. So once I tell people Tsupu's meaning, many people in an audience, and I think I already heard it today, will immediately come to feel what it means. 
It's a likeness of an object plunging that they feel inside them. Invariably, however, some will not feel it, and no argument I can make will make them feel it. Sylvan's thinking shares these qualities. The only way to grasp this imagistic logic is to feel it for yourself. <clears throat> Doing so requires a being, being or becoming Sylvan, insofar as you need to find within you some of its qualities that you already share to iconically identify with its mode of being. And this has important methodological implications for how we should go about thinking with force, to which I'll return. Thinking with cryptic insects leads me to my second observation about sylvan thinking, that it has an absential quality. We usually think of nature in terms of presence. Matter, materiality, and existence are the foundations for our metaphysics. But absence is central to life. It's a kind of non-existence that is real. Think of the ways in which such katydids are multiply absential. They have become invisible, that is, absent, because they represent an absent, leafy environment. The environment is absent in the sense that, after all, these katydids aren't their environment. They aren't, in fact, leaves. And katydids do this for an absent future generation, the future katydids in the lineage of katydids. And they can do so thanks to the absent dead, who were noticed and eaten by predators. My third observation about sylvan thinking is that it involves play. By play, I mean a dynamic in which previously tightly coupled means-ends relations are loosened such that something new can emerge. Play is ubiquitous in the living world. But this is because means-ends relations are intrinsic to the living world, not just something we humans impose on it. In this technical Weberian sense, the forest is not disenchanted. I guess you could say enchanted. By saying that life is semiotic, that forests think, I'm also saying that function, representation, purpose, and telos, in short, ends, are part and parcel of the living world. But if we think of means and ends as tightly coupled, as transitive and deductive, there's no room for something new, for growth, for flourishing, which is, of course, also central to life. And this is where play comes in. The biological production of variation is a form of play. Gregory Bateson's nip, that bite that denotes the bite, but not that which the bite denotes, the sort of ludic suspension of aggression he saw in dogs and other social mammals, is also a form of play. And any relaxation on selection creates a space for play. Growth requires play in this sense, and we should remember that also for Lévi-Strauss, the pensée sauvage is also a form of play, in that it's a kind of thought that asks for no return. The final observation about sylvan thinking is that it involves generality. Thanks to all the katydids that were not noticed, there's now more leafiness in this world. Not only are there, are there leaves that are leafy, but so too are some insects. Generality is a real property of the world, not just one that's part of the realm of life. Sorry, general, generality is a real property of the world, one that actually grows in the realm of life. Life proliferates generals. Through a process of constrained confusion, living dynamics create kinds. Think of von Euxkiel's tick, the one that is world, world poor, because it doesn't do a lot of differentiation. By not discriminating between humans and deer, indiscriminately parasitizing both, confusing them, it creates a kind. A kind of being through which, for example, in these parts of the world, Lyme disease might pass. The world then is not just a continuum waiting to be categorized by human minds and cultures. So this logic extends to biological concepts such as the distinction between individual and lineage. It may be that only the individual exists, but the lineage is the reality that makes that existence possible. 
Any individual katydid is only what it is by virtue of a lineage that temporally exceeds it. This is also true of the species. It too has the kind of general reality. In this regard, the species is not unlike the Amerindian concept of the master of the animals, the spirit master of the animals. A master of animals is a, is a being that is the protector and general instantiation of the species in question. All hunting passes through this generality. Hunters dream with them or about this domain uh, of the general in order to connect with the individual that will become meat. This generality is, is real even if its existence is only instantiated in the forest encounter. The reality of forest spirits then is on par with the, the reality of a species or a lineage. Out of an ecology of selves there emerges an ecology of spirits or gods as well. And this reality is not reducible to the social. It is to this emergent spirit life that we must also learn to attend. For these gods or, other li or others like them will be the ones who can orient us in the way that a kind orients an individual and a dream <coughs> orients the hunter. An ethical orientation for the Anthropocene must thus necessarily also involve a spiritual reorientation. Spirits, gods, and souls are part and partial of the sylvan thinking we need to inhabit once again. The politics of sylvan thinking. <clears throat> Having thought a great deal about sylvan thinking and convinced that thinking with it can provide ways to think for our times, my current research projects focus on finding spa spaces of collaboration with others who seek to sustain and capacitate domains of sylvan thinking by tapping into their imagistic, absential, playful, and general logics. This has brought me into close collaboration with the far-flung community of thinkers, whose human members, members range from indigenous leaders and shamans like Manari, to environmental activists and conceptual, conceptual artists, and human rights lawyers. On the non-human side, it has led me to explore ways to think with the spirits of the forest, the obdurate animacy of Waida, wind, alpa, earth, as they make themselves present to me. This in turn has raised many questions. What methods should one develop to listen to these other beings? And given that the modern constitution has relegated spirits to the realm of belief, how can one bring them back into concept work and conversation without being branded a believer? I should say at the outset that Ecuador is a privileged place to cultivate an ethics of sylvan thinking for the Anthropocene. First off, as I've mentioned, this is because it houses an unprecedented amount of biodiversity and diverse communities of people who continue to think with it, especially but not only in its Amazonian forests, not all of which are at least for the moment in ruins. This kind of life and human forms of living with it are given unprecedented recognition in Ecuador's 2008 constitution which was the first in the world to recognize the rights of nature. This constitution is also framed in terms of summa causae or buen vivir, an idea of living well that is not based on the modern metrics of progress and unfettered economic growth, as well as respect for indigenous plurinationalism and self-determination. But as lofty as this document appears, its aspirations are rarely given a practical existence. Although written at the beginning of Rafael Correa's presidency, the Correa regime was characterized by an increasing suppression of alternative voices, sylvan and otherwise, and a ratcheting up of extra extractive policies and practices. Large-scale mining projects, roads, hydroelectric dams, and oil concessions have proliferated, and many of these are funded by China, to whom Ecuador now has massive debts. 
Ecuador's neo-extractivist tendency, as its logic is often called in Latin America, runs counter to these innovative constitutional principles, and it has sought to feed a state whose top-down logic became increasingly amplified under the increasingly authoritarian Correa regime. If a vibrant democracy should resemble a dense forest, Ecuador is increasingly becoming a monocrop plantation. And this is the terrain through which Sylvan thought must learn to navigate. So now I just want to turn to three examples of how Sylvan thinking goes political. And these are the, the three <coughs> projects I'm working on. The first involves Sarayaku, the community of Sarayaku, um, and it involves their concept of the living forest, or Kausaksacha. <coughs> Sarayaku is a Kichu-speaking Runa community located on, on the Bobonasa River in Pastasa province. Um, and it's um, famous throughout Ecuador and the world for a kind of political activism focusing on territorial rights and indigenous self-determination that harnesses the logic of Sylvan thinking as a way to resist the imposition of top-down, state-oriented relational modes. And this has had tangible results, including the legal titling to indigenous communities of, of over a million hectares of land in the south-central Amazon and a 2012 am landmark victory in the Inter-American Court of Human Rights against the Ecuadorian state for conducting oil exploration on, on their territory without prior consultation. In October 2015, Sarayaku leaders asked me to help with a document they were due to present at the COP21 climate summit in Paris later that year. So just, we're now, we're now in the COP23 meeting. This document <coughs> now, uh, n this document known as Kausaksacha, or Living Forest, sought to present a radical rethinking of territory and sovereignty based wholly on animist principles, based wholly on the idea that the forests are made up essentially of persons. It's a call for a new way of relating to the forest and its beings by recognizing it as a vast ecology of intercommunicating living selves rather than as a collection of objects to be exploited for human gain. My responsibility has been to do the diplomatic work of translating Amazonian concepts into idioms that would, be hi would highlight the conceptual impact on Western modes of thinking about nature. The next project that I was involved with, is it, how's the temperature in the room? Is, are you people feeling hot? Is it okay? Just, it's good? It's kind of warm? It's kind of warm here. That's okay with me, but I just want to make sure. Okay. Um, just, um, so the, the other project uh, involves Sarayaku, um, uh, the, the Sapara. Um, and he, they, the Sapara nation, um, heard about my work with the people of Sarayaku. Uh, so Manari Ushiwa, the, the, the person I mentioned earlier, who's the leader of the Sapara nation, contacted me. Um, they inhabit a territory uh, just to the north and east of Sarayaku. So some images of folks there. Um, and they contacted me to see if I could help them write a document that would communicate their own understanding of the animate forest. Manadi is a spiritual and political leader. In fact, he doesn't distinguish between these two facets of his vocation. This is at the um, climate march in Washington last year. When I first uh, met him, he told me about the conversation he had had the night before with President Rafael Correa. Correa's stash of tobacco had run low, and he had come to Manadi asking him for some, a clear sign that his presidency was in crisis. It took me a few moments to realize that Manadi was talking about a dream encounter. Manadi's intense, oneric activity takes him all over the world and the cosmos, and he often wakes up exhausted. 
He's told me of nighttime battles with the Chinese oil company um, that takes him to China. And um, because this company is the one that has recently uh, acquired a concession on in Zapata territory. And he's told me also of journeys to explore the origins of the universe. What was so exciting about working with the Zapata document involved our approach to it. Traditional ethnographic methods as the work proceeded were increasingly made over by the sylvan thinking we sought to channel. Part of this involved ingesting ayahuasca. As Manadi advised me, one should only take ayahuasca with a clear intention, otherwise one risks getting lost in the many cosmic wormholes this decoction might open up. My primary intention would be to better understand wh what the four spirits want to tell the world. That's what we're trying to do in right, this document. Um, we're trying to channel this. But this, Manadi made clear, could only be approached by asking a more fundamental question. I need to first understand who I am and how this fits with the question of who we, that emergent self made up of myself, the Sapara people, and the forest they inhabit are. According to Manadi, the future does not exist in and of itself. It's an effect of correctly recognizing and aligning oneself as a self with the trajectory suggested by one's past. This has an imagistic or iconic logic. For who I am, even as I emerge as a new kind of I, can only stand in some sort of imagistic continuity with my previous self. Manadi, which means Cayman uh, in Sapara, kind of alligator, attests to this. It was the nickname given to his father. The son adopted it as his leadership role increasingly led him to inhabit his father's mantle and what Greg Urban calls the projective I that father and son share. I've worked in the Amazon for 25 years, and in personal as well as in formal terms, I've become convinced that the rainforest constitutes a vast ecology of selves that thinks. It's only, however, during this last couple of years that I've been exploring this communicative cosmos through more manifestly shamanic vehicles, such as ayahuasca. These experiences have been terrifying, as well as exhilarating, and needless to say, I've grown from them. I, I, only, I touch only on a few of the things I've learned and only as they pertain to the political project of giving life to Sylvan thought. So, I mean, part of my indulgence, please indulge me with my indulgence, it's, it's for a reason. Um, and it's also something to discuss. Um, in my experiences with ayahuasca, first in Sarayaku and then in Yanchama Kocha, Manari's home community, the first thing that happened was an erasure of everything I held dear. It was as if before I could begin thinking anew, any conceptual tenet had to be abandoned. Having worked so hard to articulate a vision of Sylvan thought as something supremely natural and one that involves wholes and generals, my initial vision was a ne of a neon-lit universe composed entirely of atomistic Lego-like bits of plastic. I felt like the butt of a great cosmic joke. Could everything I had ever thought about the forest be false? But later, what became more disturbing was the re growing re realization of the truth of what I'd written in this book, How Forests Think. It's one thing to write of shamanic metamorphosis. It's quite another to feel my human flesh peeling away as I became nothing more than a yawning jaguar's throat channeling the forest's cosmic life force, a tube-like conduit for the life that was flowing through a me that no longer existed in any embodied form that I could recognize as my own. In those days, I'd been thinking a lot about Peirce's aphorism that, quote, the individual, since his separate existence is manifested only by ignorance and error, so far as he is anything apart from his fellows and from what he and they are to be, is only a negation. 
smugly, smugly quoting this, which is something I often did when discussing with folks in Sarayaku and Yanchama Kocha, how to write a document whose author is the forest, is one thing. It's quite another to experience my individual self would dissolve as I abandoned myself that night to the reality of that larger flow of life that vastly exceeded my errant self. The political question that Manadi and other members of the community kept coming back to, for they too would interrogate me and their dreams and their visions, is what role I as an I would play in giving life to Sylvan thought. Answering to this for myself required going back to my childhood, to my adolescence, to the lives of my parents and grandparents, back thousands of years to the world of my priestly ancestors, the Kohanim, and to find nodes where that trajectory aligned with the one of the forest and the Sapara people. Not all of these paths involved filial relations. Of particular prominence was a boulder perched in front of our suburban Princeton house, with whom as a child I developed a lasting but long since suppressed friendship. I just recently found these pictures. <laughs> That's me in a poncho and diapers and whatever else I'm wearing there. A tremendous sense of gratitude for my parents emerged for not disrupting the sensuous relation I, devel I developed with that other kind. And those relations I called up that were filial also involved relations with other kinds of beings. I saw my grandmother, an amateur archaeologist who first introduced me as a child to my future vocation. I saw her swoop in on the back of an enormous cobalt-winged jaguar. And later I thought back to the daughter of one of her neighbors in Quito. That's again me, crouched, and the daughter. And in my late teens, I had uh, kneeling, I mean, me kneeling there. In my late teens, I had such a crush on her that I decided to transform a short visit with my grandparents to a semester-long stay. That's when I discovered my first true love, the Amazon forest. <laughs> this young woman's brother was exiled, this young woman's brother, who's there are pictures as well, was exiled um, to France for his political activism. In the 80s, it was a fairly repressive regime in Ecuador, um, where he completed an advanced degree in linguistics at the Sorbonne. On his return to Ecuador, he wrote the first Zapata dictionary. This endeavor is credited by the Zapatas for revitalizing their culture and is an immediate precursor for UNESCO's recognition of the Zapata culture and language as oral and intangible heritage of humanity. Forty-five years ago, my path was already merging with that of the Zapata nation. My eye was part of our we. Only on that night, on the banks of the river, was I able to recognize this, and only by recognizing this Am I now able to act on it? Now this opening to a larger we has not been easy. Since that night, I've had several oneric and psychedelic experiences in which I give up being myself and be be become part of this projective I, where Manadi voices this I, we now share through a me. And I'm trying to, part of, I'm grappling this through this archeological project that you heal about in a bit and through uh, drawing and images. So these are all sort of images about this kind of relationship. This process of becoming odd kin in Donna Haraway's terms, or brothers, as Manadi says, has been so frightening precisely because it requires I dissolve that which delimits me as an individual self. If my thoughts, if and when they are true to the world, are wholly subsumed by the thoughts of the world, what is there left for me as an individual to do? How could I be part of a greater I who nonetheless, in keeping some vestiges of my individual self, might also be a novel causal locus in ways that, can that could contribute to that greater I? Why this life? 
The question applies to me as well as to the we that includes the forest. The Sapada document amplifies the spiritual and personal nature of a living forest. Regarding the spiritual, the Sapada speak of a mythic time before the current division between the spiritual and the material, where the world was just spirit. And they think of themselves as sharing a unique personal connection through dreams and visions with the spirit origins of the world. They are its emissaries. Because persons of all kinds are nothing more than the stabilized forms assumed by the emergent concepts or gods that think them, the forest, which is at base an ecology of persons, is more appropriately an ecology of spirits. And this means that any ecological politics aimed at giving life to sylvan thinking will also be a spiritual politics. Regarding the personal, the document argues that if the force is made entirely of subjects, then knowing these on their own terms requires developing a personal relationship to them. This has an imagistic logic. Icons can only be known from the inside, so to speak, through a process of recognizing that one already embodies a likeness of the object in question. Iconism can never be felt then from the third person. This, of course, has its dangers. The only way to verify such experiences is to have them oneself. And not having them can serve as a ready position from which to refute the generalizable validity of iconic experiences. I'm well aware that bringing my personal life and my shamanic forays into scholarly discussion makes me vulnerable to easy critique for this very reason. It's part of the nature of this thing. If only eyes and I can know the eyes of the forest, how to encourage others to come to know these? In recognition of the ways in which true knowledge of the animate forest would must always be personal knowledge, the Sapadas have created a healing center called Naka, Naku, or Forest in Sapada, where outsiders come to the community to establish their own personal relations with the forest spirits. The hope is that through this, a reciprocal relation will emerge. With the help of their Sapada guides, visitors find ways through this immersion in sylvan thought to cure themselves of humanity's ills as they take on an increasing role in protecting the forest, that great font of sylvan thinking, from the ill that we might call humanism. Writing this document, I realized, would require me to cultivate and maintain my own personal and spiritual connection to the beings of the forest I got to know in Yanchama Kocha. Back in Quito, I would only write the document before sunrise and only after ingesting juice made from the tobacco that had been given to me on my forest visits. When I would meet with Manari to discuss the document, it would again only be done before sunrise, outdoors, facing Ilalo, the mountain on whose flanks I was living, and whose spirits Manari felt welcomed our endeavor, and only after having taken Wayusa tea and tobacco. Manari would listen to what I'd written with an ear for how the spirits of his forest home reacted to it. There were parts of the spirit, there were parts of the spirits didn't like, and we changed these. There were other parts that agitated them a bit, and some of these we decided to keep. Cosmic diplomacy moves in multiple directions. <laughs> so I, I want to now talk about the final project. Um, thanks for your patience. Bear, bear with me. We're, we're wrapping up soon. Um, and, and then I'll just conclude. Um, during this period, I was also involved with donating the archaeological collection belonging to my grandmother, um, Costanza di Capua, to a museum in Quito. She amassed this collection in the 1960s and 1970s and thought with it until her death in 2008. It comprises over 3,800 ceramic objects, seated shamans, jaguar persons, anaconda vessels, snuff files, sonorous instruments, and the like, all shamanic attempts to access the vast animistic forest universe 
of the Ecuadorian coast in the millennia before the Spanish conquest. When I took ayahuasca in Yanchamacocha, I had a striking vision of one of the figures from this collection, a seated Hamacuaca shaman with large blank eyes. Upon my return to Quito, I went into the collection to find this figurine, which I, didn't, I hadn't seen in many years. In fact, I'd been looking for it. And then I stumbled across another one that looked just like the Sapata shamans as I saw them in my visions. When Manati was in Quito, I brought him to see the collection and he took it upon himself to communicate with the spirits of these figures in order to explain to them what we were doing. His schedule that day was packed with meetings with government officials and a trip to Puyo. As we left the museum and were driving to get him to his first meeting, he asked me to turn the car around and go to my grandmother's house. I was kind of surprised because I thought he was so busy. I had mentioned to him earlier that my grandmother had some Lianchama bark cloth, probably fabricated in the 1960s or 1970s, of the kind used traditionally by the Sapadas to make clothing, and that today is used uh, to make the ceremonial gowns that Manadi and other Sapada leaders wear in political contexts. At the house, I found the cloth in a storeroom, dusted it off, and presented it to Manadi as a posthumous gift from my grandmother and thanks for his interest in the collection. He observed the quality of the cloth and found that, commented that it was much higher than what is produced today, and we mused that perhaps it had been fashioned by his own father, and that this was another way in which our pasts formed part of a common trajectory, one that we could recognize as such if we could just stop long enough to do so. I've come to the realization that caring for these archaic, archaic pieces might be part of the same political project of capacitating Sylvan thought for the time we call the Anthropocene. Part of the conceptual challenge of thinking in the Anthropocene is to grasp, as Deepesh Chakrabarty has noted, how different temporalities, historical, geological, and perhaps even that of spirits, become coeval. Manati, for his part, is obsessed with time, how it speeds up and slows, how he can learn to work it, in, and Amazonian shamans think de deeply with clocks and watches. My ayahuasca vision led me to reflect on this, in one, I entered a cosmic Timex store, flanked by a sea of watch-wielding Amazonian shamans, which m took me to a renewed appreciation of Lisa Stevenson's chapter, Why Two Clocks, in her book, uh, Life Beside Itself. It was, a, it was a fascination in the 1950s uh, with Inuit coming off the land. They would often have timepieces in their tents, but they usually would have more than one. They would have multiple ones. Does, an, does another way of being in time emerge when temporalities are multiplied? I feel that learning to listen to these archaic pre-Hispanic figures might tell us something about the Anthropocene as a temporal problem. Accordingly, I'm designing a permanent archaeological exhibit that would be part of this larger project to listen to, listen to and give voice to the generals that emerge from an archaic animate world and to, take, to look at these as anachronistic guides for a world in ecological crisis. This is a collaborative effort involving Manadi and the Sapara Nation, the conceptual artist Fabiano Cueva, critical museographers, architects, the sound artist Ruben Silva, who is versed in the craft of exploring the sonorous qualities of pre-Hispanic artifacts. It involves experimental research methods to give voice to these spirits uh, that the pieces con conjure. Um, and I've been sort of exploring some of this through imagistic techniques um, a lot through often drawing, as you've seen. This is part of my research method. And I'm just going to run through without, I'm not going to talk about these. I just let the, these, I'm going to run through some images, let them wash over you. We could, we could talk about them afterwards. 
Manali's um, interpretation of that seated shaman highlighted the distributed nature of the self. The man on top is the father guiding him, just as Manadi's deceased father continues to guide Manadi through dreams and visions. To understand this figure as part of a lineage, to understand its spirit life, I tried different things. I tried drawing it with an attention to the relationship between the two eyes. I've also taken to adapting theater techniques uh, Lisa Stevenson and I have been working on with Colombian refugees. It's part of Lisa's project. And we brought our colleague, Cristiano Giordano, to Ecuador to work, do theater work with the, the refugees. Um, and I've used some of these to understand imagistically um, some of these figures and uh, uh, to, to sort of mimetically understand them. And this is at, a, uh, 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 this is at Sciences Po in Paris with, uh, in Bruno Latour's workshop um, a few months ago. My grandmother's collection, like so many private collections in Ecuador of the time, is the product of Huaqueria, the informal, often violent, and manifestly unscientific excavation of pieces by locals with the view of selling them to collectors. The standard interpretive context that archaeology demands is missing. The de destruction of archaeological sites by Huacaria is, of course, highly problematic. But this has to be understood as a distant aftershock of the much greater cataclysm of conquest that, destroying, that destroyed that world that produced these. How can something true to that world and ours emerge from those ruins? Is there a way to allow the beings these figures imagistically represent a mode of expression we might comprehend? What might we learn? I began to realize that perhaps the, the fact that they were free of context might in fact liberate them. My grandmother somehow already knew this. In fact, she practiced something I've taken to calling a sensory archaeology, which is a form of inquiry that she cultivated that privileges an appreciation of forms, patterns, and the tactile as legitimate modes of archaeological knowing. Going to just show. This is a, a from a clip of a movie that Lisa and I made um, in her, the last year of her life. Just, just a sense of her way of interaction tactilely too. In its disruptions of the discursive and contextual, her particular kind of archaeology was psychedelic. And, and as such, it fits with the psychedelic orientation of the figurines, which being shamanic are tapping into sylvan thinking in ways that break the human symbolic logic that creates the systemic structures of meaning that classical archaeology seeks to reconstruct. Might not a sensory archaeology be, be more appropriate to their mode of being? Today, the last vestige of that forested animistic world that made up the equatorial region of current-day Ecuador and that extended into the areas where these ceramic figures were produced lies in the Amazon. This is where there are still forests inhabited by spirits and humans that live in relationship to them. What can we learn about those archaic but potentially living forests by entering the living forest that produced them via an Amazonian portal? What might they as generals have to tell us about the conditions necessary for their and our life? In order to get at this, we got permission from the museum to take the collections, uh, 50 of the collection's sonorous instruments to the Amazon in order to try to better listen for the messages they may transmit. We played them in the forest. By the river, in ayahuasca ceremonies. We even played them at night 
such that, that they attracted a wild bush dog, which is one of the rarest uh, creatures uh, in the Amazon. Very few people have seen them. In these experiments, we tried hard not to bring conventional musical phrasings to the instruments, but rather to allow the vast orchestra of sylvan sounds with which these instruments were participating to think themselves through us. These recordings will be part of an exhibit, and our question to those who come to immerse themselves in it will be, can this open a conduit to a spirit world in a way that can allow, us, allow you to capacitate sylvan thinking as part of an ethical orientation for the Anthropocene? So I want you to hear a snippet of this, and then I have literally a sentence of a conclusion, and then, and then we'll be done. So I want to show you a, a, sound, um, a sound clip. And so what, this, what you're going to see now is the, um, a little movie clip that it has the recording. What you're going to see is a piece, a demo of the recordings that we made in the, uh, <coughs> in, in, sorry, I just want to get this right. <clears throat> in, in the Amazon. Um, uh, so you'll hear, what you're going to hear is some forest sounds, then you're going to hear Manadi uh, ch a shamanic chant, which was part of the ritual that, uh, ceremony in which we had the, 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 the forest instruments, and then you're going to hear the forest instruments come in. And the other thing that's interesting is that it's, it's overlain with some uh, video that Lisa shot in, the, on, in a tropical forest in the, on the coast, the area where these pieces come from. And Manadi was with us a few weeks ago, and he got really interested in the use of experimental film as a form of doing this, not just standard documentary, uh, but experimental film as a form of bringing, capacitating these uh, images. And he edited, he chose the edits of which, which images to go where. And then he had a whole bunch of interesting visions and dreams about these things. So I'll just play this for a bit, and then I'll conclude. Just to conclude, um, I see these three examples as small steps towards cultivating capa and capacitating for our time a kind of sylvan thinking, with the political goal of holding open spaces where such thinking might continue to flourish. 
as its own ethical practice, Sylvan thinking would take as a legitimate form of knowing the logic of the image. It would cultivate absential dynamics as causal modalities alter to the pull and push and pull agency of our metaphysics. Its object would be to hold open the spaces of play from which it continuously emerges, and it would operate under the guidance of its own general emergent psychedelic properties, which in other words we may call spirit. Thank you. I'm conscious of the fact that some of you are probably sitting uncomfortably. Um, uh, Eduardo's agreed to take questions, but um, if you need to leave, this is an obvious break in the program where, where you might do so. But uh, otherwise, um, uh, I'll let Eduardo um, take some questions. I'm sure there are some. Thanks so much for uh, sitting through a long talk. Um, so yeah, do, do feel free to, to leave if that's uh, you need to go places or... Um, but yeah, if anyone has any questions, I'd be happy to, I, I'm really interested in, in, in the conversation. Yes? So this concept of a fucking chorus as a being that has those rituals and has those special um, ceramic uh, and has those you know, special people, is it like sort of religious? That means belief, or is it? Can you also think about it as without belief? Right. So, my my general take on uh, this is a, a, a very complicated complicated question. Um, we use the the category of, uh, of belief. A belief is a is a I, I think is a very modern thing. Um, we believe because ultimately we are skeptics, so we belief is our overcoming of, of skepticism, and it's a product of skepticism. And what I'm interested in this discussion of iconic thinking is to say uh, there's a space before doubt of something, um, which is, which, which is um, and so that's sort of the, the place from which I want to start with, the, with these things. It's a very complicated question because uh, in some sense, um, you know, I felt fairly comfortable in my book, How Forests Think, that I could speak about these things in a, in a, through a formal framework that could, I, I could describe many of these things formally um, through the logic of, of semiotics um, and in a way that I think is ultimately quite consistent with um, what biological science is or should be. Um, now I'm in a situation where things are a bit more complicated. Uh, that doesn't quite, some of the things I'm talking about don't, I've had experience of them, I know them as real, um, and I've tried to show you various sort of ways in which that's happened to me, but um, they don't fully square with the th ways I've been talking about things before, and I don't yet have an analytical language for that. And yet I don't uh, want to call them belief either. Yes? With being very fresh from reading a forest thing, uh, I kept saying, well, you know, he hasn't taken ayahuasca, and if he had, he wouldn't talk that way. <laughs> <laughs> and I am so, so grateful and so admirative 
It's a funny. It's a funny thing. I mean, I, in some ways, I thought it was a great failure of mine in my research that I didn't do this. I was quite scared of it, and it just didn't work out in the particular places I was in, and it's all for the good. But the interesting thing is that the the interesting thing is that I don't see these as I don't see this as as my ayahuasca experience as a negation of this. I see it as a continuity, even though there are tensions. And in fact, what I find interesting about my work now is that the reason. I mean, I was kind of hermit-like in this book. I mean, I kind of in my I mean, the whole process of doing the research and writing the dissertation and writing this thing. And it's only because of that that I'm actually of service to people in this more shamanic world. They, this is why, because I can, but it's still imperfect. I still need to work out. The, the framework hasn't been. That's, that's yeah. Yeah. what that makes possible. Yeah. And that was absolutely, and that, yeah. you know, I admire it. I, I could, you know, say, oh, yeah. I left that for a reason. The, I think, couldn't. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, did you have a question? Yeah. Um, curious, like, you mentioned something about something about these techniques as being, so, it seems like they're so richly context dependent. They're so right. in yeah. with the material realities of the forests right. um, and the cultures that have developed in relationship to the forests. But so I was curious to know, like, is there a way in which Sylvan logic could be sort of context neutral? Does it like require uh, right. literal material forest for this kind of thinking to be enacted? Yeah. Um, That's a great. Did you want to try? Is that a new Yeah. I mean, just the the last thing is like, if not, then. What would that mean for its application to right. our own context here? So I think you know, uh, one of the things I thought a lot about in, in my book, and I still think about, is this question of what context is. So I think what happens is that we often, when we think about context, we sneak in a kind of linguistic or symbolic or human assumptions of what context is. And context for us is about historically contingent, uh, sometimes arbitrary conventional systems that, that form the conditions of possibility for something. So that's what a cultural context is or a historical context is. Um, the thing that's interesting for me about uh, iconic and indexical forms of representation is that they don't rely on that kind of context. So for example, the word supu. Um, you don't need to know Quechua to understand supu. So in that, it's context-free in that sense. But it's not context-free in another, in another sense. Uh, if you haven't been in a world in which um, objects uh, make contact with and penetrate water the way they do with the kind of gravity that we have here um, on this planet, uh, you're not going to get it, right? So you need that kind of a context. But I, I don't have the right word for it, but those are two different things, right? So um, 
that's one general thing. So Sylvan thinking in so far as it's about, it's a call to recognize the iconic and indexical as uh, a, a forms of legitimate forms of thought that ground thought. Um, that is context in the symbolic sense, free. I mean, the, the call for that is free. Now, how things like spirits um, travel, uh, that's a much more complicated question. Um, and I think what's so interesting about shamanism in general is that it's highly, uh, it shamans are constantly breaking cultural context. They don't have a, you know, they're taking things from everywhere, they're doing all sorts of things. And I think that there is some sort of travel there. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, but how much, um, what kinds of contexts do spirit life, is, you know, what kinds of holdings do they require? Um, it's the only thing I'm sure of that is not a symbolic context in, in the way we know it in in social theory and in, 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 in humanities. But it is some sort of context. Um, yes? Um, just following on the question from before, what are the methods by which any of us can cultivate Sylvan thinking? In other, and my particular focus is how can you know a very highly analytical book, mm -hmm. for example, that you wrote, be efficacious in um, in facilitating the development of Sylvan thinking? And mm -hmm. as I was just thinking about that question, it suddenly occurred to me, and I don't know if you agree, that there's that it's not the case. Just everything else is connected, it's not the case that symbolic language is necessarily totally dualistically disconnected yeah. Yeah. from indexical yeah. and, and I iconic kinds of thinking. But nonetheless, it, it does seem a kind of backwards way, you know, I mean, a, a much better way would be to be born here and to be raised in this forest. Mm -hmm. um, in the academy, reading a very analytical book, can that really help Dawn in us a kind of thinking. Well, the thing, I mean, the thing about the way, I mean, my claim about sem semiotics, which follows in person, Terry Deacon, who I work closely with, I learned a lot from, is that symbolic thought, I mean, the, the ontological reality of symbolic thought is that it is always grounded in something larger, right? You, you, the way that you make, you know, if you made sense of something in this talk, if it stayed at the level of symbols, it meant that you didn't understand it. When you get it, that getting it, any kind of thing, is, a, is, a, is an icon. Ultimately, in a seminar, when we share an idea together and get it, we are, we are, we are, we are one, one person. Um, that sense of sharing is, is, it, is, is there in any kind of um, symbolic communication that works, right? The problem with symbolic communication that doesn't work is that you, know, you can end up in a world, it, you get lost in 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 that uh, in in the, that stuff and never get down to the image. So that is a claim about the general properties of these things. And sometimes it makes sense to get certain things straight to figure out you know what were the metaphysical mistakes that we've made to to do all this complicated stuff. But ultimately, it's going to have to cash out in an image. Um, and do you, in your book, do you explain how the process of that cashing out, like? Yeah, yeah, I go through that. I run through how that, in a very technical way. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's a discussion. But, but it happens, you know. And, and I think good, you know, good teachers. Uh, and I, you know, I still struggle to do this. But a good teacher, you can see how they can do this. 
how can you tell a big story in a picture and have that picture also be accurate? So I've got lucky, and my editor didn't like this title, How Forests Think, and I got lucky that I got to keep it, but that's an image, right? It's a picture that actually unpacks this larger thing. Did you have a question? Yeah. Um, thanks, this was really great. Um, among many things, what I heard is a very radical, different idea of self. Yes. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Whether in this approach <laughs> can still think of self, or is there still something like self? And how would you kind of? I mean, I think that. you know, I think self is a super important. Thing. I mean, I mean, we, there's definitely a self. There's lots of okay. selves. The question is, I think that part of what it is to be a growing self is to have been a situation where you can disrupt a self and then rebuild, right? And that's that sense of constantly, like selves that become stultified as selves are no longer selves. It's, it's a weird kind of, I mean, I think of it a lot in terms of my own life in terms of sort of, you know, when I get depressed, what's the depression? It's just a constant, for me, a reiteration. It's not a breaking up of my myself. And I think that's actually why something like psychedelics are so useful in, as antidepressants. Because they actually reboot yourself. You get it for a moment, and of course, then you can very easily fall into your habits. But you kind of, for, for, for you actually, it, it breaks down, but then reconfigures. I think the selves are real. I just think that they're also open. They have a kind of, and they're not necessarily bounded to, bounded to an individual. Mm -hmm. And I think spirits have some kind of self-like quality, which that I still haven't fully worked that out yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Yes. Yeah. First a comment and then more of a curiosity than a question per se, but um, you know from a classical archaeological point of view, your use of the term of diplomacy is really interesting um, because this term has so long been thought um, as a kind of state-centric, proto-bureaucratic genre yeah. of writing letters and reports between mm -hmm. states. and. Um, uh, but I, I'm really struck um, by your presentation. I think you did a wonderful job, and all the extra textual, iconic, and sensory dynamics at play, which I think do a lovely job of suggesting some ways of, uh, of some practicable and teachable ways of communicating what you mean by Sylvan thinking. But I'm particularly interested um, in both the con content and the form and the genre and context in Austinian sense. Um, of the reports that you helped write for this climate summit. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering, uh, do you talk a little bit more about what goes into the kind of translation and contextualization of Sylvan thought vis-a-vis um, -vis a global summit of states? Um, and ju just to kind of throw this out there to be provocative, might we call this a kind of Sylvan writing, per se? And um, if so, uh, how would you think of that kind of writing in relation to something like ethnography? Yeah, so I mean the first thing regarding the term diplomacy, like several of the terms in my talk, I'm not so sure about that term for the very reasons you've used. I mean something that I adopt from Latour and Latour often uses this kind of very status sort of ideas. I'm not sure that I want to use the images of warfare and diplomacy. Uh, uh, so I've been using it now but I'm not so sure I'm going to hold on to that. Um, in terms of the, the reports, um, the report that they presented at the meeting, I didn't go to the meeting, um, but 
my sense is that these were often presented in, uh, you know, they weren't in the negotiations, the big negotiations among the heads of states, but they were in some fairly important para, paras, parasites. Um, the, the one, um, one thing that was super exciting that emerged from that meeting, so the document itself is a short two or three page document uh, that lays out this vision of, um, of what they call Kausaksacha, and that particular document was the product of um, many, uh, it had been several drafts have been, have been written by people in the community, and then they called me in to sort of get it to a form and, 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 and organize it, and, and to introduce some, you know, some words that would, you know, would appropriately translate things, based on this super exciting sort of, almost like a, what is a seminar, where we were just sort of throwing around ideas, criticizing, uh, really super exciting. And this kind of thinking in that particular community continues. The, the, the document for the Sapadas is different. I wrote it myself in the sense that I, it was, I'm the only person who did the writing, but it was really an attempt to channel um, uh, what, uh, what, uh, what, what we were, what we were, what I was hearing. So I was trying to channel everything that was going on there. Um, I don't know if it's Sylvan writing. It, it is in the sense, sense. Ultimately, in the sense of, can you take a whole bunch? Uh, can you can you use writing in a way that brings out that transmits images? So ultimately, all good writing should, even technical things. But poetry obviously does this well. But also, you know, much more technical things. Yes. Yeah. One more question. One more question. So, uh, yeah. So thank you also for the talk. It's wonderful. And I just had a question about the, the large-scale political potential of your work um, in terms of bringing about radical cultural change. Um, to me, this seems like a, a model of a, of a way to sort of get deep in, maybe I'm misunderstanding it, but deep into Western rationalism, scientific rationalism, yeah. and, and open it up. So I'm wondering. Do you have any vision for that, um, and what might that what what might that mean? Um, because I, there's there's a sense of you know, I mean, as as you're presenting, you get a sense of some form of nostalgia almost that I, I'm not sure. But is are we in any way discounting the the uh, things that have that that Western rationalism has? made possible, right? Scientific thinking, Western rationalism. So I'm, I'm really wondering how, is there, in, if this is a cultural politic, is there a way that the two can be combined? And is there a way that um, the way that the market is working now, consumerism doesn't eat this in some way, that this isn't just a form of escapism, that we take our, <coughs> our drugs and we mm -hmm. have our psychedelic experiences and then we come back to our academic personas and our our Western rationalism—is mm -hmm. um, yeah. there deep cultural potential in this for, yeah. for change to really affect? I mean, I think you're bringing up a lot of things. Um, I, I think that there's a huge danger in what I'm doing, uh, and I can sense by the sort of interest I have in these things, like oh, psychedelics. Wow, you know, um, there is a sense that this is a, an easy kind of fix, right? Uh, that you can. Um, that you can, and of course we've gone through this before. I mean, there have been already, there have, we've already had at least one psychedelic revolution started right here, right? Um, and, uh, right here. not right here, <laughs> right, 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 
here. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. Sadly, uh, yeah. So, um, uh, so I think there's a huge danger to this. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, that's it, right? That's Max uh, psychedelic revolution, right? There you go. Um, that's beautiful, right? There's your answer. Um, but yeah, so I think it's a, it's very dangerous what I'm doing, and I, I think that I'm trying to, um, you know, dangerous. Not like I'm not being heroic. I'm just really like. And, and I think it, it's, a, it's a very difficult thing to also... I also think the thing about the psychedelics is that, I mean, what's interesting about it for me is that, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it gives you a certain sense of uh, possibilities that you can actually act on. But the acting is going to be the real hard work of acting on it. It's not going to give you any... any um, but, yeah, please follow up because I want to just, I want to yeah. continue with this. So I'm just curious, is there a way to do it by, re I mean, in a way it's a shift of narrative, right? So if we look at how cosmologies shift over time, right, yeah. we're, we're shifting of deep human narratives, right? Yeah. And you could argue that scientific rationalism is a cosmology. So, I, I mean, I think your project is absolutely fascinating and, and needed, but I, I wonder, is there a way to, generalize what you're doing. So I mean, this is very individualized. It's very much about bringing in these these experiences, the shamanistic experiences that could open things up to yourself. So is there a way that we could generalize these things, that we could start culturally as a collective rewriting our narratives that, in a way that brought about some of these more spiritual yeah. and non-modern aspects, but in a way that kept what's positive about, you know, well, what's happened over the last I mean, 300 years? I think clearly, you know, first of all, I think this the one thing that I was trying to make clear, but in what Manavi was trying to say in terms of my own self, is like, you're not going to, if you want to, you can't just um, jump into some sort of otherness uh, to do this. You have to actually find how this is already in you. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not about going to the Amazon and going to am indigenous people and looking for this as a solution in that sense. It's, a, it's about finding these things, and so that's why this idea of the icon is so important. But the, the hard thing about that is it does have to be individual and personal, because that's how icons work. Um, and of course, icons are a double-edged sword. I mean, you know, a master, of, I talked about Trump's thoughtlessness, but also he's a master of iconic thinking. I mean, this is serious spirit movement he's doing, and it works. So, you know, all kinds of, you know, this is used a lot, uh, and marketing uses it, and, um, so it's not like icons is just gonna, you know, iconicity and mimesis is gonna just answer stuff. Um, but working, learning somehow how to work with it is. Yeah, I'm gonna let everyone else rest.